let me just describe to you why we're calling this the 100-year plan. Two reasons. Number one, I'm kind of just having some fun and being a little bit satirical, and this is sort of our response to, hey, bro, what's your five-year plan? It's our way of saying we're not ripping off any Harvard Business Magazine for a five-year plan or anything like that. For the next 100 years, if God gives that to us, we're going to be preaching the same gospel, we're going to have the same strategy, and we're going to have the same biblical values. No five-year plan here. Um, but, but the second thing that's being communicated in that title, 100-year plan, is we, we kind of want you to see how these values and these goals and these strategies, they're, they're all intricately designed to kind of get us, to get us past ourselves and to get us thinking this way. We're not planting our church. This is not our church. We, we want to cultivate and develop a church that outlasts our own lifetime. So we want to start to think of it as, hey, this is our children's church. This is our grandchildren's church. Let's gear our practices and, and our theology and our values towards longevity. That way, Frontier Church doesn't just kind of end up being a flash mob church. Tons of energy and excitement at the beginning, and then it just fizzles out. Instead, we're aiming at a 100-year plan. So as we look at our second value this morning, let's pray and let's ask God for his help in understanding his word and seeing this value come to life. Heavenly Father, as we study this incredible prayer, of the Son of God in the flesh in John chapter 17, how I hope and I pray and I long for us to feel like we are in that upper room with Jesus, praying this prayer with Jesus. Help us actually long to be one church. Help us actually long to have the value of community, to not just say it, and to not just let community be a buzzword or a buzz phrase in our church, but to actually want to practice it. To live a life that pursues Jesus Christ by pursuing other Christians and developing deep friendships and relationships with them. Help us this morning, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There was a... Uh, there was a recent study from Drake University that discovered some, I, th I think they're alarming statistics. 27.2 people today live alone. One out of every four people, one out of every four, that's 25%. One out of every four people say that they have no one they can turn to as a confidant. And what's more is that more people say they feel alone today than any other time in history. This survey also discovered that the number of socially isolated Americans since 1985 has doubled. Now, we live, in a, we live in a specific time and place in history. And our specific time in history, it's been referred to as the age of radical individualism, radical individualism. So imagine with me for just a second, church, that radical individualism were, a, were an official religion with its own official Bible. What might some of the scriptures or the mottos or the doctrines of radical individualism be? 
Imagine this. I think some of the doctrines would be, for instance, Mephesians chapter 5. The chief end of man is me. Or perhaps Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 2. Any religious community like the church or especially the church is unnecessary because my main mission is my quest for individual self-expression. If you, if you kind of listen to our culture, these are some of the mottos that are rising to the top. Or maybe it would be something like Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 2. I don't need any help, any disciplines, any teachings, or any instructions, or anybody to help me in life. Is this you? Here's a picture of isolation. Imagine a large gray town, a large gray town where it's always raining and always drizzling. And as you get to know this town, and as you start to kind of walk through the town, what becomes really, really eerie to you is not just the weather or the climate in this town, but the fact that it's almost empty. It kind of, as you walk through this town, I hope you can picture this. As you walk through this town, it, it almost seems like a ghost town, and you learn a little bit more, and you learn a little bit more about why this town is the way it is. And what you discover is this. You realize that this town is mostly empty because all of the residents and citizens are quarrelsome, argumentative, opinionated, and divisive. So every time neighbors get into an argument with one another and begin to quarrel with one another, they just end up tapping out on the relationships and they move farther and farther and farther away. I need some freedom from that neighbor. I need some independence from that neighbor. But they continue to quarrel and argue, and so they continue to move farther and farther away from one another. I, I don't like the way that he mows his lawn. I don't like the color of their curtains in their living room. And they keep on moving farther and farther and farther away. So the image of this town, this gray town where it constantly rains, this is actually the way that C.S. Lewis describes hell in his book, The Great Divorce. So it, I think this is really intuitive. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes hell as a town where people move farther and farther and farther away from one another until everybody is depressed and separated and probably incredibly active on their iPhones. Farther and farther and farther away from one another until they're isolated. Which is interesting because in the scriptures, one of the ways that hell is consistently referred to is as a place of isolation. Here's 1 Thessalonians. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Isolation. Conversely, though, heaven in the scriptures is often described as a city where Christians are gathered together and worshiping God. So it might be that isolation is the practice of hell on earth, and community, community is the practice of heaven on earth. So, so praise God, hallelujah, uh, Frontier Church here at this local church, we are passionate about community. In fact, community is our second value. Um, if you missed last week, we uncovered our first value, which was gospel centrality. That's that's the foundation for Frontier Church, man. If you missed that one, uh, go back on our website, um, rewatch that. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. We're going to focus on that second value this morning, 
community. So here's a slogan for community at Frontier Church to just kind of kind of like a, a banner for us to think through community together. We root the unrooted in boring, messy, sacrificial friendships that display the gospel. How's that for a sell? Okay, let's walk through that. Boring. Just expect this at this local church because at Frontier Church, you're just, you're just going to share ordinary life with ordinary Christians. There's no superstars or like rock stars at this local church. I promise you. Ordinary life with ordinary Christians. Secondly, it's messy because we're sinful and we need Jesus. And when sinful people hang out and need Jesus together, it becomes a mess. And lastly, they're going to be sacrificial friendships because biblical community is always shaped by the cross. So for the next 30 minutes, guys, if you can hang with me for the next 30 minutes, I hope you'll better understand some of the things that you see around Frontier Church. Like, I hope you better understand why, why do people hang out at this church for like 30 minutes after the Sunday service? What's up with that? What's going on with that? Or, or why... Man, why are, why are people at this local church always inviting me for lunch after Sunday services? I don't even know some of these people. What's going on there? Or, or maybe you have the question, why, why does this church practice liturgy where everyone confesses those words together? Or why at communion do we have to, why do you have to wait for everybody else to drink their juice and to eat their bread together? Why so much emphasis on community? Why so much talk? about community here at this local church. Well, I pray you see it come through in John chapter 17 as Jesus prays. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Okay, so to catch you up, um, Jesus is halfway through his high priestly prayer when we come to verse 20. What he's prayed for already is his own glory and then his disciples, but then he shifts in the prayer away from just his disciples, to you and to me. So imagine Christ about ready to say goodbye to his disciples, and he begins to pray this about you. He says, I do not ask for these only, the disciples here in the room with me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word through the teaching of the apostles, the New Testament scriptures, so that they may all be one, just as the Father, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Yes, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So, Father, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me 
may be in them and I in them. You can have a seat. So um, that, that's, that's a lot, right? In, in just those six verses, Jesus prays a lot, and he uses a lot of religious language, and he kind of uses a lot of different technical language, and it seems like he's kind of praying in circles. And so that can kind of be a tough text to follow along with. But even though there's all that stuff going on here, the main point of his prayer, you guys, it, it's actually pretty simple. Here's the main point of Jesus. Jesus is saying, God the Father loves God the Son. And Jesus wants the world to know this. Jesus wants the world to know that it was God the Father who sent God the Son. He wants, to, he wants the world to get this and to see this. And, and what's his strategy? And what's his method for making this known to the world? This is fascinating. His method of making this known to the world is community. So picture a triangle, church. Picture a triangle. This is a really helpful visual. Picture God at the top of the triangle, at the bottom left of the triangle, Christians. At the bottom right of the triangle, Christians. This is how community works. As you grow closer and closer and closer to God, what else is happening? You're also growing closer and closer and closer to Christians. Do you get that? You have that image in your head? Yeah? Good. Now, let me ruin it for you, because I'm the worst. <laughs> so let me ruin it. Here's Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, be of the same mind. How? Well, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You see that? By being born in the likeness of men. And then being found in human form, church, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the triangle visual is right, but here's where it breaks down. It's got to be an upside-down triangle. Should I ditch this? Back pocket? You guys told me to do it in the back pocket, didn't you? This is what I get for being rebellious. <laughs> Serves you right, bro. All right. So here's where we're at, okay? Christian community is a triangle. Think of that. But it's got to be an upside-down triangle. Here's why I'm saying that. Because the more and more we move closer to the crucified Christ, the more we are humbling ourselves, and the more we are lowering ourselves, and the more we are emptying ourselves and pursuing the cross of Christ, and that's how we actually grow closer to other Christians. You see this in John 17. But I want to slow down for a second, and I just want us to see three different things in John chapter 17. First, I love how this comes through in the text. I want us to see, the first thing I want us to see is the flavor of community. There's a, there's a specific flavor that Jesus has in mind for Christian community, and you probably caught it the first time we worked our way through this prayer, because in these six verses, Jesus, he prays for something three times in a row. Three times in a row. You've got to get that this is the ancient world, okay, church? This was, this was before the invention of PowerPoint. This was before the invention of the highlighter. There's no bold font yet. There's no italics font yet. So if you wanted to make a point, what was the tool you had to use? Repetition. 
So we'll have this text on the screen for us. Listen to this repetition. What is Jesus praying for? Well, Jesus prays in verse 21. Jesus prays that they may all be one. And in case any of the disciples are snoring in class and not paying attention, Jesus prays again, and he prays for the same thing, and he even dials up the importance of oneness a little bit in verse 22. He says that they may be one even as Jesus and the Father are one. And then, in case you missed it the second time, Jesus prays for this same thing a third time, and he even dials up the importance a little bit more in verse 23 by saying that they may become perfectly one. There's really no other way that Jesus could make it more clear than repeating it three times unless he were to just slap somebody in the face. Unless he were to just slap one of the disciples in the face. So don't miss what Jesus is trying to make clear. The specific flavor that, that Frontier Church should have to it, that Christian community should have to it, is unity. Oneness. Togetherness. Guys, he wants us to be one. In where in the world do we get the power to pursue unity from? Well, let's keep moving through Jesus' prayer together. Look at verse 22. We'll have this up on the screen for you. This is my second point. This is the way of community. Jesus says, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them so that or in order to or to give them the power to make this possible so that they may be one. So how's that for power, church? Can you imagine a better power source than that? Jesus is going to share his glory with you. I mean, that almost sounds like heresy, doesn't it? If I told you that Jesus is going to give some of his glory to you, it almost sounds like I'm outside of bounds of the Bible, but it's right there in our scripture. Jesus, to make unity possible, is going to share his glory with you. And does that, does that make you feel special? That's good. Does it make you feel privileged? Because it shouldn't make you feel privileged. Here's the reason why. Follow me in this. There's a glory that Jesus is glory alone, okay? There's a type of glory that is only Jesus's and Jesus's alone. This is the glory that he has had from the foundation of the world. It's his glory that he has from being God. You don't get that glory, okay? You don't, he's not going to share that glory with you. You get to see that glory and look at that glory, but you don't get that glory. But there also is this glory that Jesus shares with us. And when you see that type of glory in the Gospel of John, that's in reference to the glory of the cross, okay? So in the Gospel of John... John refers to, the, he refers to the crucifixion of Jesus as the glory of Jesus because it's where Jesus is most fully revealed. So when Christian community shares the cross, when God shares the glory of Jesus with us, it means he's going to share the cross with us. So it's got to be an upside-down triangle. It's got to be about lowering ourselves, humbling ourselves, and more and more carrying the cross. And if it's not that, then community just it just ends up displaying us. That's not, 
That's not what we want community to display. Just us? In our, in our preferences? No. We want community to display. Well, let's look at the end of verse 23, you guys. This is the purpose of community. This is what community should display. Verse 23 towards the end says, I am praying that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me before the foundation of the world. So in other words, Jesus is saying, Father, I'm going to share the glory of the cross with them so that in sharing the cross with one another, they would become one. And in their unity with one another, the outside world would look in and they would see and they would look and they would say, Jesus must be who Jesus says he is. The world may know that Jesus is who he says he is. So Jesus probably has in mind just the, the white hot evangelistic effect that the Christian community would have on the surrounding Jewish community, right? So the Jewish community would deny that Jesus is God. And so Jesus is praying that when the Christian community gathers together in Christ, that the flavor and aroma of their community would have this sort of impact on the Jewish community. Look at the way those Christians live together. Maybe Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe Jesus is God. That's the type of effect Jesus wants Christian community to have. He probably has in mind um, the hyper-competitive Roman culture too and what sort of radical impact Christian community would have on the Roman culture as they shared their life together. He wants Roman culture to look in and be like, whoa, the way they share their life together. What do they have that I don't have? What do they have that I'm missing out on? In fact, guys, I love this. One scholar says, Christian community makes the gospel believable. Can I say that again? Is that okay? Christian community makes the gospel believable. So at Frontier Church, People should hear us preaching the gospel and proclaiming the gospel and sharing the gospel. And then when they jump into community with us, they should see the gospel in 3D. Right? Christian community is where the gospel becomes three-dimensional, where you can prove the gospel and touch the gospel and see the gospel and experience the gospel and see what it looks like for the gospel to, to work itself out. There's this unbelievable purpose in Christian community that's unsurpassingly beautiful. Don't miss it. I want you to see this as you live in community at Frontier Church. Do you see life this way? When life gets incredibly dark and Christians are there, it's because Jesus prayed for it. How awesome is that? Or when you need an encouraging word and another Christian speaks exactly the word that you most needed to hear, it's because Jesus prayed for it. That's amazing. Don't take this stuff lightly, you guys. And after Jesus prayed for community, he went to go pay for community at the cross. It's all blood-bought, church. Every time your bank account hits zero and Christians are there, that's the blood-bought gift of community. Every time you experience authentic Christian community that builds you up, blood-bought. Every time in small group you share a meal, blood-bought. Every Sunday morning when we gather together, blood-bought. Blood-bought, blood-bought, blood-bought. Now, think then. 
if Christian community displays the gospel in 3D, what do you think the enemy's plan of attack is? If you were the enemy and you knew that when Christians got together, the gospel was displayed, what would your plan of attack be? Well, I mean, if you couldn't get him to, to doubt Jesus, and if you couldn't get Christians to forsake Jesus, you would try something a little bit more subtle. For instance, you might try to get Christians to think that all they need is quiet time to follow Jesus. That's a little more subtle, you guys. If you were the enemy, your plan of attack might include getting Christians to think that all they need to follow Jesus is private prayer time. You would try to get Christians to believe that you can follow Jesus alone. You would try to dismember members of the body from one another. You would try to isolate Christians if you were the enemy. You would try to get them into being a limping gazelle separated from the pack because you would know if you were the enemy that an isolated Christian is like a sack launch for Satan. Two years ago, one of our church members shared an awesome story with me that I haven't forgotten. And it's about the importance of community. In fact, two years ago when we were working through our vision sermon series after we just launched as a church, I actually shared that story. So this might ring familiar for a couple of you, but in this story, it's about an eye-opening moment that this church member had with the Lord when he was in college. So here's how it goes, okay? Um, this member, his mother, being an awesome mom, his mother, being an awesome mom, ended up pestering him once he went to college to, get check, like, to check out a local church and to get plugged in and to commit to a local church, right? Just kind of pestered him. And so eventually he broke down, and he went and he checked out a church. And he was, I remember him telling me, he was shocked by what he saw there. He, he saw other college students who actually wanted to be at church. He hadn't really seen that before. I didn't even know that was really even possible. So, in the middle of this church service, he closed his eyes and he prayed to the Lord this prayer. God, I want to follow Jesus. I really do. Will you send me help? Would you send me help to follow Jesus? How many of you have prayed that prayer before? Probably a lot, right? Like almost all of us have prayed that prayer together. God, I want to follow Jesus. Send me help. What would an answered prayer look like in that case? Maybe more moral strength or more religious resolve. Or maybe an answered prayer would look like more spiritual disciplines. Maybe. God, help me follow Jesus. And I love the way that this story ended because this church member said that after he had asked the Lord for help to follow Jesus, he opened his eyes and he looked around at all the Christians in that room and he said, God has sent me the help that I need. That's the answered prayer. Community. So guys, we want to make it Here's what we want to do at Frontier Church. We want to make it almost impossible to follow Jesus alone. So practically for us, guys, that, that means that our entire philosophy of ministry at this local church, or just kind of the way that we do church, our entire philosophy of ministry, what it really is, is just a philosophy of community. 
It's a philosophy of community. It's not a bunch of impressive programs that are dynamic. and No, it's just a philosophy of community. For instance, at our Sunday gatherings, we submit to the Bible together. We sing songs together. We confess liturgy together. We take communion together. We also have community groups. And if you go to a community group, it's not impressive. We just eat together. We study the Bible together. We pray together. We're on mission together. We also do something called fighter groups, guys. And at fighter groups, we rejoice together. We repent together. We remember the gospel together. Sunday gatherings, community groups, fighter groups. I'm not going to unpack all the details of our philosophy of ministry because in about a month, we'll actually preach on each of those individual things. So for now, here's what I want to do. If it's okay with you guys, I want to pause the sermon and and I just want to be really brutally honest about some of the dangers that come along with preaching and having such a high value of community. Because there are. I really believe that we need to have a high vision and value for community. But there are some serious inherent dangers that come along with preaching and teaching on community. I'm going to hit a couple of those together. Firstly, one danger of community is that we can confuse community as an activity for certain personality types, right? We can think, oh, com- community, that's what extroverted Christians do. But me, that's not for me, man. I'm, I'm an introvert. But when we call you guys, when we call you to root your lives in boring, messy, sacrificial friendships, we are not saying be extroverted. That's not what we're saying, in fact, if Christian community is done rightly, church, it should be, like, it should be equally difficult for extroverted people because it's going to call people into a type of community that is considerate of others and requires us to slow down and be quiet like it's hard for extroverts like me to do and to listen and be considerate. So it's not, a person, it's not about um, deifying extroverted people and then demonizing introverted people. It's not about that at all. Here's a a second danger. By having a high vision for community, we can wrongly develop a higher weology than theology. So here's here's just a, this is a razor-sharp distinction, but it's an important distinction, okay? Here it is. You were called into community, but you were not called for community. This is why the distinction matters. You were called for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone community is a product of that. And so we should never, guys, we should never develop a a value of community that exceeds our value of Jesus. That's when things get weird, right? That's when things get cultish, and, and that's when things don't operate the way that they should, okay? There's actually... When you have a right theology, there's actually a, a healthy level of individuality that you should pursue, right? Or when you have a high theology, there's actually like a healthy amount of quiet time that as a human being you should pursue. There's actually a healthy level of arguments that you might even have with your community group because he, he, one of the dangers is that when you have a higher weology than theology, then all sorts of heresies and lies about Jesus can thrive and flourish and grow in a local church. And we don't want that. We don't want to create this culture where everybody's too afraid to step on everybody's toes to even say, hey, bro, I think you're wrong here. So that's a danger. Pray against that. And the last danger I want to touch on is that (laughs) this is a real danger, okay? 
This is the one I often do. The last danger about having such a high vision for community is that we can wrongly romanticize Christian community. So when a preacher stands behind the pulpit and tries to paint this beautiful and compelling picture for community, then community can often sometimes in your imagination just become an ideal. And when, when that sort of stuff happens, then, then you end up jumping into community with tons of like expectations, right? And tons of demands that you bring with you. And you try to boss people into being your friends. And what has that ever worked for anybody? Right? You, you try to manipulate people into doing things. And that's just never good. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. Those who love their Christian... Wait, hold on a second. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. If you fall in love with your dream more than the actual people, you'll just end up destroying your community. And, and that's why we've got to be really upfront about it. Because if I can be honest with you guys, church community has hurt me way more than any other type of community. It has. I'm just, I'm just closer with you guys. And, and, you, and you guys just have more of my heart than other communities do, which means you can stab it and prick at it and hurt me more than anybody else, but it's been worth it. And it provides deeper joy and satisfaction, but you just have to get that it's going to be hard. That's why we're up front, right? We're saying we're rooting you in messy, boring, sacrificial relationships. That, that's why we're up front about it. The triangle has to be upside down. You're moving lower, humbling yourself more and more. So it's just hard, guys. And so the most important encouragement I can give to you this morning, the most important encouragement for you to flourish in these type of friendships is just to remind you of your friend. This is the anchor. This is the power. You just need, if you're going to thrive in boring messy, sacrificial relationships, you have got to be rooted in your friend. And you know what friend I'm talking about, right? I mean, it's that, it's that old hymn I'm talking about. The, what a friend we, you do not want me leading worship, right? That would not be good. But you know what friend I'm talking about, that one friend in your life who picked the world's worst friends, 12 who had fights over who was the greatest and stuff like that. You know the friend, the friend, this friend, Jesus, the community, he befriended, man, it wasn't ideal at all. Just look at the way that his life ended, handed over to the government of Rome, abandoned by his friends alone. What? A friend we have. You know who I'm talking about here, right? And at his darkest hour, I imagine him lifting his head to scour and look around for a friend. Man, a friend. Only to find himself surrounded by the crowd, mouths open loud with contempt in the thick of religious leaders who thought it was funny to stick it to him with insults. But that much we would guess, right? The religious leaders, they just never loved Jesus, and the crowds were kind of hot and cold about him. But I imagine him at the crucifix lifting his head as he suffered, died, and bled, looking for a friend and to find his disciples nowhere in sight, hiding in the darkness of that day's night. And what's worse, I imagine him lifting his head to find me nowhere in sight, just running, 
at first difficulty just taken flight. And yet, he calls me friend. I mean, what a glorious friendship this is, church, formed at the cost of Christ on the cross. What a friend we have in Jesus. So here's the gospel. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken so that we could be together, together with God, together with one another. That's why we can sing old hymns like, what a friend we have in Jesus. Not because we're such good friends to Jesus, but because Jesus has been such a good friend to us. That's the gospel. That's why we can sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. Because Jesus' main focus was not to pick good friends. His main focus was to be a good friend, which he most fully, most beautifully accomplished on the cross. That's the key right there. That's the key to community. That's the power. The cross, church, that's the power to being able to root yourself in boring, messy sacrificial friendships, and still somehow thrive and display the gospel. So I I just pray that you find that compelling and that you find Jesus with you as we just embark on this messy adventure of community together. Let's pray.